Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a psychologist gives advice about how to talk to kids about tragedy. The most important thing for our kids is for them to know that as parents, we are the people they can come to for clarity, for answers to questions. A weight loss surgeon discusses what to expect with today's surgical options. Not just a visit with a surgeon, but it's really a visit with a whole team and you have that whole support system afterwards. And we'll hear from an andrologist about why the sperm rates in men are falling so dramatically. We studied three colors, yellow dye, which is found in Mountain Dew, the blue and allora red, and we did that in vitro study. Our results showed that this uh, yellow dye is really toxic to sperm. We'll have all that, a checkup from the neck up, and a visit from our healing muse, but first, the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, medicine, and science with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, we'll talk about what to expect from today's weight loss surgery options. Then we'll explore the reasons for declining sperm counts in men. But first, we'll hear about how to discuss tragedy with children. When bad things happen, such as terrorist incidents or mass shootings, parents can have a tough time deciding how or whether to share the information with children. Here to talk about this is psychologist Wendy Gordon, a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Upstate. Welcome. Good morning. Uh, Do you have any guidelines for what to say to children based on their age when something bad happens? I think we always have to consider developmental level when we're talking to our children. Um, Young kids have limited sense of time, limited to no ability to abstract. So I think the briefer and the most straightforward um, conversations to young kids um, are much more helpful than a lot of details which they're not going to understand. For older children who are not only um, within the home but also outside with peers in social situations, they're going to be hearing a lot of information that you don't have control over. I think the opportunity to say to your child, what are you feeling about what's going on? What have you heard? What are you worried about? What are your friends saying? about what went on gives an opportunity to do several things. One, to open up the opportunity for conversation with your children and also to correct any misinformation or inaccuracies that they may be hearing from their general community or their or their peers. Is it um, is it bad or detrimental for children to see their parents reacting Um, crying or shouting or reacting in some way to what's happened? I think that it's important that parents stay as calm as possible around their children, but parents are human also, and the fact is that if parents are worried, if parents are upset, it is certainly not a bad, unhealthy thing for children to see within 
limits uh, parents expressing those same feelings. It normalizes them. It gives the kids permission to have whatever feelings they have as well. So I think that um, it's important for us as parents to remember that children look to their parents for reassurance. So if you have a parent who is really emotionally distraught, they need to find ways to discuss their own emotions with peers or community partners um, before they speak to their kids. If you think of it, if you um, are extremely upset and agitated as an adult, your child's going to pick up those feelings regardless of the words you may use. It gets to more of um, they do what they see, not what you tell them. They react to the behavior. So I think that parents saying, it is sad, I'm very sad about what happened. It is a little bit scary. Or having tears, um, being upset, but again, within limits, not to the extremes, because what your child sees in terms of your reaction is gonna go a long way to what their response and what their stress levels are gonna be. Right, and sadly, it seems like we see a lot of these situations, mm -hmm. the mass shootings and things happening. Um, Unfortunately, that's very true. So for parents, you know, the, their duty to sort of help their kids process these violent acts, um, it, it's tricky when the parents are also struggling to process what all, what's going on and what this means. So you mentioned maybe other community resources for help, um, the schools, teachers, other community. Yes, help. teachers um, can be a great resource if we keep a couple things in mind. Teachers are also adults who are human and having their own reactions. But one of the things that can be very helpful for children, and frankly, I think it's also helpful for most adults, is to the extent reasonable and possible to maintain normal routines. And for kids, that means going to school, having their regular activities as much as possible. And within the school, the teachers provide another avenue to provide general information, but more also to continue the, the normal day, the structure of the school program, which doesn't mean that there's not flexibility in having some time for discussion if that seems to be necessary being mindful in the classroom about individual children's reactions. Um, stress affects learning, so the more stressed a child is, the more problems they're going to have learning. If they're stressed for other situations not related to the particular event um, that's affected the community or the world, then their baseline for reacting is going to be higher than a child who's generally doing well. Um, and I think that um, the schools also need to be aware that kids who may suddenly begin acting out um, are not trying to, to push their buttons, to give them a hard time, to be difficult when everybody is having a hard time anyway. Kids react um, to anxiety and fear um, the same way that grown-ups do. Sometimes they get withdrawn, sometimes they act out. So trying to be aware of um, what's going on within the school community, but again, keeping the routines. 
So with keeping the routines, um, that's important for children. Is that important for adults as well? I feel it's very important most of the time um, if we focus on the stressful event, the traumatic event, to the exclusion of everything else that's normal in our world, there's a real tendency to begin to feel like everything is unsafe, to catastrophize um, and to generalize from some bad events to everything feeling tremendously unsafe. One of the things that normal routines provide, whether it's school for children um, or work or general day-to-day activities for adults, is a chance to get redirected into your normal routine activities. It provides a distraction um, and allows you, um, in most cases, to be able to focus on the normal part of your life for at least a good chunk of the day. Obviously, nobody is unaffected by trauma, if you're talking about community trauma, global trauma, Um, but one of the things that causes difficulties for adults and is absolutely problematical for children is this 24-7 news cycle of watching the same tragedy repeated over and over and over again. For very young children, going back to your question about developmental issues, one of the things that we know is after the the tragedy of 9-11, the news was showing 24-7, the two planes were crashing into the two towers in the World Trade Center. As adults, older kids had an ability to understand that this was a replay of a single event. Young kids had the very clear impression, which makes sense given where they are in their um, cognitive understanding, that planes were repeatedly crashing into other buildings, and the whole um, their whole understanding was that every building all day was being attacked by separate planes. So. You know, we, we can't and we probably shouldn't in most cases prevent um, any awareness. I mean, we have a fantasy of bubble wrapping our kids sometimes and protecting them from, from life. And as much as it's an understandable concept, it's not realistic. Um, but putting some limits on um, what young children see at all and how much of the constant repetition um, and sometimes media hysteria uh, about a situation that in and of itself is bad enough, um, the, the older kids and the adults themselves are exposed to. This is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Upstate psychologist, Wendy Gordon. Um, let me ask you this. Is there a risk in sheltering your child too much? You mentioned like we want to bubble wrap mm-hmm. them, protect them. Um, but, you know, keeping them away from the television, maybe not talking about the shooting in the church or whatever, um, it, you know, they could be talking with friends and hear about it and not and then not be, you know, aware. Does that catch them off guard? Is Precisely. That- exactly. That's why the bubble wrap fantasy never works, because uh-huh. um, there's there's two problems with that. One, the one that you mentioned that you will um, there's no way that at some point the children are not going to hear 
some conversation, whether it's their own parents talking when they think their children are asleep, whether it's a conversation the adults are having with other adults, and certainly when kids go to school, even in preschool and kindergarten, other kids will have some information, accurate or not. There are adults in those school situations that will be engaged in some discussions. So I think the most important thing for our kids is for them to know that as parents, we are the people they can come to for clarity, for answers to questions, that not only do we reassure them that while what happened was a very, very sad thing, that you are there to keep them as safe as possible, that you can talk, they can speak with you about anything that they like, you will do your best to answer questions. So there really needs to be a middle ground. And so even something like, you know, when you go to school, you may hear people talking about um, a really awful thing that happened in, fill in the blank, unfortunately, mm -hmm. in, the, in whatever state, whatever incident. Um, and there was a person who did some very awful things and hurt a lot of other people. We can talk if you want about what happened or we can talk um, when you get home about what your friends are thinking about it, but I wanted you to know that you might hear some things and that you're safe here. We do a good job of keeping you safe and most other people in the world are good helpers and do their best to help in emergencies and to keep people, grown-ups and kids, safe in general. Do you think there's a difference um, between a violent act that happens, say, in your neighborhood down the street versus um, something awful that happens in another country or a state far away? Do, do kids process the geographic difference? distances or does that even matter? Well again depending on the age. If you have a young child um, their concept of their world is pretty much where they live and they're where they go to school where their friends live. So if you describe something that happened in another state or something that happened overseas they don't typically have the abstract um, ability or knowledge yet to say, oh, well, that is thousands of miles away from here or hundreds of miles away from here. But for older kids who do have that understanding, and certainly for adults, I think that one of the more typical reactions is that the further away it is, the more different um, the environment is, the easier it is for people to reassure themselves, justifiably or not, that, well, that was awful, but it didn't happen here. It happened someplace else. Um, I think that's getting a bit harder to do, unfortunately, um, particularly related to gun violence in this country, which is something that you hear about far more often in this country than in any of the other countries in the world. Um, I think when something happens within your community, there's also more of a shared sense um, of support from that community because people are more affected. This happened here. This happened nearby. Um, sometimes people know the affected people, and that can be both a source of a certain amount of anxiety, but also a source of great support because the community has shared 
feelings. You don't need to try to explain to somebody what happened because they're also aware, and that's a big difference than somebody dealing with individual or an, a family stress or tragedy. Thank you so much for your insights. My guest has been Upstate psychologist, Dr. Wendy Gordon. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next up, weight loss surgery options on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. If you or someone you care about is considering weight loss surgery, also called bariatric surgery, there's a lot to consider. We have with us today an assistant professor of surgery who specializes in weight loss surgery, Dr. Jesse Gutnick. Welcome. Thanks, Thanks for, for having here. me. So let's talk about what things are important for someone who's thinking about weight loss surgery, because it's a definitely a life-changing decision that they have to make. What, what, are, what do they have to be prepared for long-term? Well, I think there's really two things that people need to think about, um, and they're both equally important. The first is, um, are they someone that would qualify for weight loss surgery? And um, you can look this up online, but really the main indications are, do you have a height and weight that um, is high enough? And then that's calculated by something called the BMI. And is that high enough to sort of qualify for weight loss surgery? Because it's not for someone who needs to lose 20 pounds. Correct. And um, you should be able to figure that out by talking with your family doctor and those measurements that are there or checking online. Um, so that's sort of the, the one side of things. The other one is, is this something you're interested in ready for from a personal and family perspective? Because it is a big life change. So... Um, Talk to me about that. What do you have to be ready for? It just because of the surgery and planning things out, or what does it do to your life afterward? Yeah, so I, I, I would say that if you do sort of are starting to think about it, one of the things that all programs offer are seminars to kind of discuss this in much more detail than we have time for today. But first of all, it's the surgery itself. You need to be ready to spend that time and undergo that operation and recovery from it. So you need to be able, in a place where you are able to go through that process. Um, and then there's a, a lifelong change to the way you eat afterwards. Lifelong, be, meaning um, you're going to be eating less uh, than you're used to, that you've been used to your whole life. So um, what about... Exactly. And, and many patients say, well, isn't that the point? Why would I need to sort of think about that? And I think some of the reasons are... Often some of our most important family functions or other functions are centered around food. And so um, some people um, that have some difficulty afterwards are often expressed that's one of the biggest difficulties. Um, like it took me time to work with my friends who were surprised that I wasn't eating as much, et cetera, et cetera, things like that. 
That's got to be hard to think about and predict whether that's going to be difficult for you. It, it can be. So one of the wonderful things about how um, weight loss surgery is set up is that during the evaluation process, we explore all of these different um, issues with the patient. And it's not just a visit with a surgeon, but it's really a visit with a whole team. So you see not only a surgeon beforehand, but you see a um, registered dietitian who's somebody that specializes in nutrition multiple times before surgery and multiple times after surgery. Um, also, depending on your needs, you get um, sort of the comprehensive evaluation by other kinds of physicians that might need to kind of get you ready for surgery. And you have that whole support system afterwards. So often these issues are sort of explored beforehand. And if something comes up afterwards, you sort of have that team to deal with it. But it's still something that people need to sort of be ready for mentally. And um, the vast majority of people are, but not everyone is. And that's why those are some of the important things. Are the patients that um, seek surgery, are, they, are these people for whom this diet and exercise just isn't working? Yeah, and the common story for most people is that diet and exercise did work for a short period of time, and then they typically gain weight back, sometimes more, frequently more. Okay. And this has often been a cycle over several years. Almost none of my patients have come come in, uh, and it's the first time they've thought about seeing a weight loss surgeon. Often they've been thinking about it for several years, tried working with their physician with some uh, medications that help with weight loss, and those have been either moderately successful or not successful, and are looking to see if there's another option. So it's not at all about appearances. Um, it's it, this can be like a life-saving surgery too, right? In some for some patients. Uh, well, theoretically, for most of our patients. So the reason that those thresholds that I talked about with the BMI were chosen is above that is when you start really seeing people's lives shortened by the effects of obesity. And those are often diabetes, high blood pressure, heart problems, lung problems, these kinds of things. And so um, when people undergo bariatric surgery, the, the goal is to improve all of those other health issues, number one, because it improves or it lengthens the most people's life but then also secondarily, the goal is to improve all those to improve their quality of life. So things like joint pain or taking fewer medications. Diabetes. For many people, that's one of the biggest um, reasons that they seek weight loss surgery is to decrease the number of diabetes medications they take or to change it from an injectable type of medicine to a pill, something like that. Um, with women, do you see fertility being something that they desire too? That this would improve fertility if they undergo the surgery? or Yeah, there's some data that suggests that fertility is improved. Um, that's not what we have the strongest data in. Oh. Probably the strongest data, uh, looking at people over the long term, uh, is the improvement in diabetes and um, hyperlipidemia, which is too much cholesterol in your blood. Well, I want to ask you about um, the surgery, but let me re remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Jesse Gutnick, an assistant professor of surgery at Upstate. So there's different ways to do this operation. Um, 
how do you decide which method is best for each individual patient? Well, almost everybody um, has surgery performed laparoscopically. Um, so so that's small incision? So that's multiple small incisions instead of that traditional single long incision down the middle of the abdomen. Okay. Um, and really bariatric surgery has been done this way for over 10 years now, very, very successfully. Okay. Um, there are several different uh, operations that can be chosen, and we try to tailor those um, around the particular patient. Sometimes that's tailored by what their other health issues are, and some of that is, the, is what the patient is really interested in. So many patients come in with some friends or some family members that have had really great success with a particular operation, and because of that, they're very interested in that one. And as long as there's no reason not to do that operation for that patient, um, we work. We tend to do what that is. But sometimes there are some specific health issues that make one a better choice than another. Okay. So you go over all that with each. Yeah. So that's that's a big part of the evaluation is seeing where the particular patient's coming from, and but from a personal perspective, and seeing where they are from a medical perspective, and trying to match those up for a plan for each individual patient. So there's the gastric bypass and a sleeve gastrectomy. How do those differ? So those are the two most commonly performed operations in the United States. Um, the sleeve gastrectomy involves uh, the removal of a portion of the stomach so that the stomach is turned into a tube, and that's why it's called the sleeve. It looks like a, you can imagine a sleeve, and okay. a shirt looks like a tube. Um, and that works two ways. One, you eat a little bit less because the stomach's a little bit smaller. Um, the other one is you remove uh, a portion of the stomach that actually is a hormonally active part of the stomach. And that part of the stomach makes a hormone called ghrelin. And that is a hormone that signals you that you're hungry. And so by removing that, um, it changes or modulates your some of the hormones that are working in your body that um, are related to um, uh, uh, hunger and feeling satiated, and then also some of the hormones that affect your management of the, the overall body weight. Okay. What, uh, what are the success rates like? How, how many patients end up gaining weight back after surgery? Because it's, it, it's hard to eat, overeat, right? You're not physically able to overeat. So the success rates um, vary, and there's really three factors. The, um, the first factor is what operations chosen. Um, the different operations have, just by their nature of how they work, have are almost, you can imagine them like a stronger medicine or a less strong medicine, and so they work a little differently, and some sort of have a stronger effect than others. The second one is um, what is the genetics of the particular patient? There are some people, as we all know, that you can see eat uh, whatever they want, whenever they want, and never seem to gain weight. And there are some people that don't, that eat very healthy and tend to gain weight. And the same is true after weight loss surgery. Some people respond to the operation more strongly than others, and so that has an effect. And then the third one is making um, lifestyle changes. So one of the most important things we work with patients uh, once they've had the surgery is ensuring that they're on an ongoing basis 
making the changes that they need to to make the most of their operation so that it's lasting and that it's part of a total change in their lifestyle towards a healthier one. Do they try to, um, do you have patients make some of those lifestyle changes before the surgery just to see if they, I don't know, can live with it? Yeah, so some of them we work very hard with them to make beforehand and some of them are might be difficult to do beforehand. So a dramatic increase in the amount of exercise uh, often may not be possible beforehand, um, but we try to get people on a more of a scheduled pattern of doing some exercise so that they're used to that schedule at not necessarily going out and doing a dramatic increase in the quantity because it may not be possible. Often people have a lot of joint pain and things like that, and that's the reasons that they're coming to see you um, because they are have limit in their mobility and things like that. But what we try to do is set them up for success. So working very carefully with our uh, registered dietitians to make the uh, uh, food choice and eating habit changes that will help them get success with the surgery initially and set them up for success over the long term. How quickly after surgery does the weight come off? Do you, do you leave the hospital lighter than when you came in, or does it happen that fast? Well, you only leave the hospital a couple days later, so you usually haven't lost any weight in the first 48 hours. Um, people uh, often have quite dramatic weight loss in the first couple of weeks. Um, part of that's just because we get them started on a very low-calorie diet, um, and then that continues through the, really through the first year. And um, it's we see the people back on a very regular basis in that first year um, to make sure that they're on their way to their goals and that they're staying healthy on their way to their goals. After about one or two years tends to be what we call the nadir, which is the low point of where people tend to be. So wherever you sort of settle out, that tends to be where you're going to be at after about a year and a half to two years. There's a few patients that continue to lose a little bit of weight, um, typically because they sort of get the exercise bug and have made such a change to their lifestyle that they're exercising like wild, and they may continue to lose weight. But for most people, that tends to be where they're at. Good. And Very so nice. at that point, we follow people up still on a regular basis, but less frequently. Less frequently. Because it's, um, we're just looking to make sure that they're still doing well over time and picking up if, if things are changing. Well, this has been very helpful. Thanks for being here. My guest has been Assistant Professor of Surgery, Dr. Jesse Gutnick. I'm Amber Smith for the podcast and talk show produced by Upstate HealthLink on Air. Hi, I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's checkup from the neck up. Hurry, 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 or buying happiness. Ah. Well, folks, you probably heard the old saying, you can't buy happiness. And like with most pithy maxims, there's some truth to it. A while back, research showed that above a certain income, about $75,000 a year, enough to be comfortable materially, more money, even great gobs, doesn't make us much happier. And 
anecdotally, there might even be negatives. I once read about mega-wealthy movie maker Steven Spielberg's mom saying, after he said she could buy anything she wanted, it wasn't a happy treat anymore to buy, say, a shiny new pair of shoes because she could buy 50 or 100 or 1,000. And having to have, imagine having to polish all those little buggers. <laughs> what a waste of time. Speaking of, I once hired my young son to polish my shoes because I hated it. And from that little experiment, I found I liked being free for funner stuff. And as a dad, I loved that he also hated polishing other people's tootsie cradles. And who knows, that may have helped him study hard, graduate college, yay, get a good job, yay, which makes me even happier, yay. And you know what? New research confirmed my little experiment. It found we can buy one happy-making special thing. What is it? I think I'll make you cool your heels a bit before I tell you, dear listeners. Hint, hint, dear listeners. <laughs> yes, if we spend money buying time, we're happier. But we can't fill it doing busy work. Gotta buy some experiences we like, especially new ones that fit our personality and goals. Like giving our kids a brush with work so they study and get a good job and out of the house, which makes us happy again. Then we can bribe them to visit us with some grandkids. Did you hear that, my two wonderful sons? Stop working so much and get busy making grandkids. It's a bit like polishing shoes, but not a whole lot. You might even like it, and it's free. Except nine months later, the bill comes in big time. I'm Rich. That's my two cents. O'Neill, thanks for checking in. Coming up next, sperm counts are on the decline. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Scientific American recently reported on what sounds like an alarming trend affecting male health and fertility, that sperm counts are dropping throughout the Western world. Here to discuss this with us is Kazim Chohan, a professor of pathology and of obstetrics and gynecology and the director of andrology at Upstate. Welcome, Dr. Chohan. Thank you so much. Being here. Scientists said in this article, it was published in the journal Human Reproduction Update, that sperm counts in men from America, Europe, Australia, and New Zealand have dropped by more than 50% in less than 40 years. Are those alarming numbers? Yes. This, this study provided a compelling evidence that uh, sperm concentration is declining in the Western world, and I will add to that that uh, this is also happening in the developing countries too. 
So the scientists that were quoted in Scientific American said this decline is ongoing. It, this, yes, this so. this is continuing process happening right now. And uh, like in last four decades, we have uh, decreased, the sperm concentration has decreased from 93% to 66%. What What's going on? What's causing this? Well, uh, the causes for this uh, trend in sperm uh, concentration decrease is due to endocrine disruptors, exposure to pesticides, lifestyle, including diet, smoking, etc. So endocrine disruptors, what are those? These are, uh, these are components in our environment like bisphenol, all bisphenol, phthalates. We are, we are getting exposure to these chemicals on a daily basis. They, they disrupt our endocrine system, and uh, that's a way they are impacting not only our reproductive health, they are also impacting our general health. The good example is bisphenol, which is found in our plastic bottles and plastic wear. Okay, yeah, that's everywhere. Yeah. The other causes are like uh, smoking. I want to explain, like once someone is smoking, it is impacting two generation at the same time, like mother is impacted negatively by smoking, at the same time baby in the womb is impacted, and then we have another generation as gonads in the baby. So at the same moment, three generations are impacted, and if I add to that, even more than three will be impacted, that's right, because gonads are having the genetic material for the future of springs. There was a good study on um, pesticides, like there is a fungicide called venclozolin. This, I think, this study was published in nineties. That uh, this study, this venclozolin is used in uh, grape vineyards, and when scientists fed that venclozolin in water to the mice, that impacted the reproductive and general health of mice up to three generations. So, so all a these, lasting, lasting yes, impact. Yes, this is the lasting impact, and a good impact. Good example of that is, like this is kind of now epigenetics playing role. Like the pair, uh, like the people in World War II who suffered from starvation. Now scientific data shows that their children are having high blood pressure and they have an early onset of diabetes. Hmm. So all these things happens through sperm, and it goes to the next generation. These are the major causes in that. So is this happening in the developing world as well? Well, I, my understanding and my, my personal knowledge is that uh, the conditions are worse than the developed world because there are no environmental laws in those in developing countries and people are exposed to way too many pollutants, environmental toxins and all that kind of stuff. And uh, there is no scientific data available from these countries. But so, anecdotally, you get phone calls and Oh, yes, correspond. I have phone calls, and I see these uh, patients from those countries. And uh, I have given lectures in those developing countries on my visits there on this um, environmental issues and uh, reproductive health. Do we know, are there areas in the world where sperm counts are rising? I don't think that they are rising. And... Uh, Considering the current circumstances where we are exposed to environmental contaminants on daily basis, I don't think so.
All right. Well, what does sperm quality say about a man's overall health? Well, uh, when we talk about man's overall health, there are two kinds of issues here. One is general health. One is reproductive health. Let's talk one by one on each. Okay. Once sperm are required for reproductive health. On a semen sample, three things are important. One is sperm concentration. That is the count okay. of sperm in the ejaculate. Second is motility, which is movement of the sperm. Third is morphology, which is shape of the sperm. All three are required in a good number to have successful fertilization. Okay. And uh, the magic number is that a gentleman should have to a good number of morphologically mortal sperms. Now, the impact on general health is that uh, we have to understand spermatogenesis biologically, that it happens in an enclosed environment in the testes. Testes is having blood testes barrier where they are not exposed to blood. And if environmental contaminants are impacting spermatogenesis, then we should consider that uh, these cells are highly enclosed and they are impacting, they are getting impacted by environmental contaminants. Compared to that, our other body cells are open for insult and these environmental contaminants and all these uh, uh, smoking and all that kind of stuff is negatively impacting our body cells. So that is the basis that we see that the patients or the gentleman who has poor semen parameters, they have high mortality and they, they are more prone to have uh, diseases and cancers. That makes a biological sense here. So the testes is sort of a picture of the rest of the body, what's happening in the rest of yes, the body. Yes, yes. rest of the body is more vulnerable than testes. Interesting. Um, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Professor Kazim Chohan from Upstate's Department of Pathology and Obstetrics and Gynecology and the Director of Andrology at Upstate. Um, I wanted to talk to you about some of the research that you've got, that you're involved in here at Upstate having to do with sperm. Well, my lab, uh, my lab is involved in this research on environmental contaminants and the impact on uh, reproductive health. Majority of our studies are in vitro and uh, we conducted different studies. First, we wanted to know if there, is, if there is any impact of profession on semen parameters. We studied all different professions and we figured out that the truck drivers and the information technology staff, the computer people who spend majority of their time sitting on the chairs, they have the poor semen parameters. And the basic reason that comes out of this study is because they spend most of their time sitting on a seat or a chair. That increases their testicular temperature and high testicular temperature is kind of uh, uh, toxic Detrimental for sperm. Detrimental for sperm. So does it affect the sperm concentration? Yes. It, it impacts sperm concentration, shape, as well as motility. Wow. All three parameters are negatively impacted. We conducted a few other studies on um, bisphenol, which is found in plastic bottles. And almost in every sim single plastic we find that. And that is also found in many things like dental sealants and especially these uh, food canes, 
that's a lining inside of those food cans is made of bisphenol phthalates which is found in our makeup stuff hair gels and uh, makeup for ladies and all that kind of stuff octylphenol is another uh, stuff we studied all that in vitro and we found out that bisphenol was having high impact on sperm motility as well as sperm dna quality it huh. not only impacted the motility it it uh, it decreased the it 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 was toxic to the sperm dna which is required for the future offspring and if a gentleman is having more than 30% dna damage the chances for them to become pregnant naturally are really poor so if if exposure to all these chemicals is too high the couple may face infertility and this will also have effect on general health recently one of my student came to me and he said oh is there any impact of mountain dew on men so we gave him yes, soda yes okay. so i gave him the same project this is an interesting story i said you are going to work on food colors this has not been published yet i'm in middle of writing this paper so we studied three colors yellow dye which is found in mountain dew we studied uh, blue and alora red and their metabolites in the body and we did that uh, in vitro study and our results showed that this uh, yellow dye is really toxic to sperm that increased more dna fragmentation in sperm compared to blue and red and uh, my personal understanding while going through all this study is that uh, main impact of the all these environmental contaminants and exposure to all these is important in utero when a female is pregnant that is the point where a male is impacted more compared to his individual life Because so when the mother is pregnant when the a- mother is pregnant she should avoid all smoking she should not go for all these toxic things and she should avoid herself from environmental contaminants and plastics and all that that is the that is where the testicular stuff is more no matter is is sperm or it's oocytes uh, whatever that those gametes are they are more sensitive so the mother is protecting not just her baby but the future generations absolutely absolutely interesting Well, what do you say to men who are struggling to become fathers or having some fertility issues? Do they stop that drinking a, Mountain Dew? Yeah, is that you, you are asking a you asked a very good question, and I'm asked that question many times in a week. And uh, my recommendation to gentlemen who are planning to have a baby or who are having fert- infertility issues, my objective is that they should stay away from. Uh, the food which create obesity if once they become obese their testosterone level will go down second they should maintain their testicular temperature at lower degree stay away from laptop laptops put a pillow on you in your lap before you put a computer and uh, stay on healthy diet try to take some antioxidants i'm not a big advocate of taking supplements in terms of vitamins and all other minerals kind of stuff i think that they should go for natural antioxidants with juices and fruits they will be more helpful for them and stay away from these plastics and all that kind of stuff they should if they want to have like water bottle they should get bisphenol free bottles 
stay away from these curtains in their like uh, bathrooms and that creates some environment where they can have more vapors having bisphenol vapors and all that stay as healthy as you can and uh, maintain your testicular health it's just not important for you it's important for your future generations so good basic health yeah good basic health interesting well thank you so much for being here this thank, is thank you for inviting me i appreciate it this my guest has been professor kazim chohan from upstate's departments of pathology and obstetrics and gynecology and the director of andrology i'm amber smith for upstate's podcast and talk show health link on air And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Ithaca poet Joyce Holmes McAllister uses her poems to capture a memory, specific in time and shape, yet so evocative of universal longings. Here are two poems to illustrate my meaning. The first is a sonnet, which pays tribute to the speaker's mother. Mother Seeds While peeling apples, you remove the core, the segment of the fruit which houses seeds, an inner life unsparked, unknown before. Then you remember her, her voice, the needs, related while red peelings filled the pan, held on her aproned lap, words wrapped in past adventures, childhood tales, some other man she knew before her marriage lot was cast. You learned to peel the apples, too, from her, and took her stories to the core of you. Both seated, knee to knee, you sought to spur the telling, hoard the words, small seeds that grew. She did not know her stories would seek light within the words her daughter yearned to write. The second poem, which is called Night Poem, will bring a smile to writers everywhere, What do we do when the muse visits at night? Night poem. I wonder what they were, those words I can't remember, formed in darkness an hour before dawn. No flowing pen, length of lead, small blank scrap of paper reached my hand to save them, nail them to the page. Instead, their sounds were muted, echoed under pillows, teasing under sheets, begging half-closed lids to read their ticker tape of words racing past dozing sight. But slumber stole each image, sent them back for paper, a hand that held a pen. It might have been a good poem, those words that searched me out, tried to chase me all the way back to troubled sleep. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week, we'll explore opioids, pain relief, and how to reverse the epidemic. 
If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith. Thanks for listening.